This is episode number 113 with former homicide detective and cop in the FBI Violent Crimes Unit and one of my high school football coaches, Danny Stevens, or as I know him, Coach Cop. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. My name is Nick Carrier, and I'm a lifestyle entrepreneur and fitness trainer. One of my whys is to get closer to the best version of myself. My goal through this podcast is to gain more vision and clarity as to what the best version of Nick Carrier really looks like. What does the best version of Nick Carrier feel like? What skills does he possess? How does he treat others? What is he capable of? And so on and so forth. Every day as I gain more clarity and can put more of a finger on who that person is, I want to find ways to reverse engineer that person to make him a reality. And I want the exact same thing for you. I want you to gain a clearer and clearer vision on what the best version of yourself looks like because only then can you start taking action on making him or her a reality. The way we do that on this show is to bring you people who have been hyper-focused on getting closer to the best version of themselves up to this point in their lives, have had great success in doing so, and they continue to work on themselves day in and day out. That way we can provide you with both the tools and the inspiration so that you can create your best you. As you guys continue to grow, this show continues to grow. We are seeing some amazing growth lately and are continuing to have some amazing guests coming right at you. Today's guest is Danny Stevens, or as I will refer to him from here on out, Coach Cop. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that this is going to be one of the best, if not the best podcast episodes you've ever listened to. And that's not just from my podcast, but from any podcast. I'm telling you, his stories are going to have you both on the edge of your seat. They're going to give you the chills, and you may even shed a tear. Coach Cop has been working as a cop for 30-plus years now and has always listened to where his heart told him to go. He became a cop after his grandma was a victim of a crime. He decided to switch divisions after his daughter had a near-death experience, and I can't wait for you to hear one of his craziest cop stories. Oh, and he coached Sean McVay, head coach of the Los Angeles Rams in high school, and he was his personal security guard for the Super Bowl, and I don't want you to miss him telling that story. I don't even have to tell you to share this with a friend or family member because I know you're going to want to do that on your own. And luckily, Spotify and Apple Podcasts make that super easy, or you can just text somebody, nickcarrier.com slash podcast, and the episode will pull right up. Before I get into that, I want to tell you about this amazing offer for you because you're a listener of the Best You Podcast. Chris McChesney is hosting an all-day workshop event on Friday, November 22nd from 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. at Tulsa Community College out in Oklahoma. The 2019 Tulsa Strategy Execution Workshop is going to be filled with advanced exercises and is aimed at leaders looking to improve their ability to successfully execute on their most critical strategies. And because you're a listener of this podcast, you will get your ticket at a huge discount. So bring your plan, bring your team, learn from Chris McChesney as he breaks down the lessons learned from helping thousands of organizations bring focus, leverage, engagement, and accountability to their teams. If you're a business leader, department head, marketing manager, HR manager, team leader, project manager, entrepreneur, or really just anyone looking to execute on their wildly important goals, this workshop is for you. And because you're a listener of this Best You podcast, we have an unbelievable discount for you. All you have to do is go to nickcarrier.com slash podcast and we'll have the link for you and you can use code best you and you'll get an absolutely huge discount on this once in a lifetime experience. Again, go to nickcarrier.com slash podcast and you'll see the link ompevents.com slash Tulsa Strategy Execution Workshop and you can use code best you and you'll never let your major initiatives and major goals fall victim to the whirlwind again. 
All of the details and that link and code, again, will be on the show notes page at nickcarrier.com slash podcast. If this is your first time here, then welcome to the family. Welcome to the team. This is a group of amazing individuals who are all striving every single day to take one step closer to becoming the best version of themselves. Make sure that you click subscribe so you don't miss any of the new episodes coming up. And make sure you go back and download about the last 10 episodes so that you can catch up with everyone else and you're not falling behind. But guys, for now, it's time. It's time to work on getting closer to the best version of yourself today with the one, the only, the legend, Coach Cop. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I have a super special interview today. Um, I have one of my high school football coaches, actually, Danny Stevens, or to me, Coach Cop, um, and probably to a lot of you out there uh, as well, uh, Coach Cop. So, Coach, I really appreciate you spending the time with me today. It's really an honor to be here, Nick. I, I'm glad you uh, asked me to do this. This is going to yeah. be fun. Yeah, well, definitely. Well, I know we're going to get a lot into his stories and everything like that. Currently, he's a high school football coach, too, but his uh, kind of main job, he's a fugitive detective for the Atlanta Police Department and has been kind of a cop um, and in different roles as a cop uh, throughout his entire career and for the last, what, 30 30, 31 years. 31 years. Um, and so super excited to get into some of that stuff. But the basically way I want to start is give a little uh, context for people kind of leading up to that um, and give a little bit of context for me because I don't really know too much about your early childhood and like kind of how you got to being a cop. So we're going to start with when you were 13 years old, you uh, ruptured your appendix and playing a football game. So I kind of want you to tell a little bit about that story and just kind of take it from there. Yeah, I was uh, 13 years old. I played for a uh, youth organization called the Atlanta Colts and uh, loved it. I was having a time of my life. We were 5-0, and doing really good. And then two of the most influential coaches I ever had, football coaches, were uh, Billy Martin and Bill Schmitz. And uh, I love those guys to death. And then all of a sudden I got really sick. And um, I hit a quarterback from, from uh, uh, another team called Tucker Lions. And I hit and I sat in him. I had a great game. And all of a sudden, I just wasn't feeling good. And then I kept getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And uh, so eventually, my mom, I stopped eating. I couldn't eat. So then I went to the doctor. They pricked my finger. And um, there wasn't enough blood to show that I had a ruptured appendix. And uh, so what had happened was is I kept coming home. And, you know, I'm still sick. And then my mom made my uh, – it was Thanksgiving. So my mom made turkey and dressing. And then that's my favorite dinner. And I couldn't <laughs> eat it. So she goes, something's wrong. So she took me to the hospital and to a doctor's office from a recommendation from one of my football coaches. And uh, I went to the doctor's office. First thing he did is he took blood from my arm. That's the first time that's ever happened. And then they wheeled me away to the, o- the OR. I, my appendix have already been ruptured for 15 days. Oh, my and, gosh. And uh, that, that's not supposed to happen. I didn't think I was going to live through it. So they get in there and they sedate me, everything. And then um, they put me asleep. And then when I woke up, Everybody that I knew, everybody, my, all my family, my football coaches from, uh, from the Atlanta Colts were there, and I'm getting ready to go to surgery, and I knew something was wrong. And then the doctor asked everybody to clear the room, and he wanted to talk to me one-on-one. I'm a 13-year-old kid, and he, um, he told me about the, the will to live. 
Oh, they didn't think I was going to live through it. He told me, he says, what's going to happen is he goes, your appendix is in a, like a balloon right here and it's been, it's ruptured. And we scared that when we cut you open, the oxygen from the air is going to pop that balloon and all that poison is going to go in your body. And, um, we're just hoping that, you know, that you're going to pull through this. And he goes, and I believe in, in the will to survive. And I believe if you put set your mind to it, you know, a man can do anything. A young man can do anything. And I looked at him. I was scared. I looked at him. I said, how long is the surgery going to be? And he says, about five hours. And I put my hand out there. And I said, I shook his hand. I said, I'll see you in five hours. And then something happened that changed my life forever. And I'll never forget this. Uh, I was a spiritual kid. I grew up in church and everything. And I'm getting ready to, I'm getting wheeled out. My parents at the end down there waiting on me to get there before I go through the doors. And my football coach, Bill Schmitz, came up to me and he grabbed me and he says, Cat, they call me Cat Stevens because <laughs> I had nine lives, I guess. He goes, Cat, he goes, uh, you're going to be all right. He goes, I promise you, you're going to be all right. And he looked me square in the face and he goes, hey, son, I want you to know I love you. And I'm like, I've never had another man in my life other than my father tell me they love me. So as they're wheeling me in, I close my eyes and I pray to God right then and there. I said, if you let me live through this, I'll be just like that man right there. I'll go give back and I'll go coach football the rest of my days. And so I go in, I kiss my parents. And of course, it's kind of weird because that, that happened on a, a Saturday night. And then when I come, come to from surgery, of course, they wake you up in the, uh, in the um, recovery room. And I don't remember that. And then so then I wake up. On Monday, and the first thing I saw when I woke up, I'll never forget it. It was Monday night football. The Bears were playing the uh, Tampa Bay Bucks, and I looked up, and I had all these tubes coming out of me. And uh, my dad took off running because I was in a lot of pain. But that set the course for the for the rest of my life. I um, I went and played college football after that, and uh, I went finished the year at Murphy Candler, and then I went on to play college football, and then my uh, my uh, grandmother became a victim of a crime. And then when she became that victim of a crime, I, I left college football and joined the Atlanta police department. So when that happened, I, when I was 20, I was 22 years old. I then kept my, my promise to God and I started coaching football. I went right back to Murphy Candler, the Atlanta Colts yeah. and started coaching there. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, let's, I, I want to backtrack to the, the football thing a little bit. So um, when you started playing football in college, right? And then before you graduated, this happened, the, the incident with your grandmother. First, go a little bit more into, I guess, what exactly happened to give a little people a little bit more context. And then had you ever thought about being a cop before that? Like, or was uh, it just kind of like a random decision? No, that's, I think it was divine intervention because I was going to be a, a high school football coach and a history teacher. That's what I was majoring in. <laughs> I was wanting to be a coach. Okay. And then, uh, and then all of a sudden, it was December 22nd, 1987. My grandmother was in a, in a bad area of Atlanta. Uh, she was poor. My grandfather had died, and she lived in a bad area of town. But all her kids, my uncle, aunts, and uncles, we always went there on Christmas Eve, and, and we had kind of like a Christmas dinner. And then we opened up presents, and then we all went home and had Santa Claus open presents that morning. Well, on the 22nd, my grandmother was, was not very, very wealthy at all. As a matter of fact, what she, was, she usually gave us for Christmas was envelopes with like $5 in it or something like that, cash. Well, she was in a uh, restaurant and I had her purse around her neck and an individual came up to her with a gun and says, give me your purse. 
and it was December 22nd. And then she had all those, she just went and got all the cards and had all the money and everything ready in there. And she said, no. And so, uh, thank God he didn't shoot her, but he did beat her with the, uh, with the pistol and messed her up her face up a little bit, uh, took the purse and took off running. So then she went to a, uh, a hospital near there, which my other grandmother was a nurse. And back in these days in 1988, all we had was, uh, we didn't, we didn't have phones or nothing like this. We had answering machines. So I had just came home from college and on that answering machine was a, a message from my mom and dad where they were at. My grandmother had been assaulted and all that. So my, all my grandmother could think about was getting back and finishing that dinner. So when I came back, so when we, I went down for Christmas the, uh, two nights later and I saw her face. I went and joined the Atlanta police department. I quit school. Wow. And I said, you know what? There's nothing more important in my life than family. And I said, this is never going to happen again. So I uh, joined the Atlanta police department. I got, I got on November 18th, 1988. Wow. So yeah, what go a little bit more into that decision because like, obviously that's the motivating force, but there's definitely like, I'm sure you had debate for a little bit, maybe before you actually made the final decision that I'm going to do it. Like, what was the thought process going into it of stopping school? And when did you actually finally commit full time being like, all right, this is what I'm going to do? Well, it took a little bit because what had happened was, is that, remember, that's 1987. So then 88 came and I'm, I'm struggling with myself because uh, football was my love. And uh, all my life, all I've ever been told, family first, family first, family first. Your last name is more important than your first and all that. I've been, I was raised by you know, my mom and dad raised me and that's how they raised me. And I was like, well, my grandmother didn't live in a good side of town and I wasn't going to let anything happen to her. And she had been burglarized twice since that incident. And then I finally said, you know, it's time for me to go do something. So I went and joined the Atlanta police department and self, I gave up college football. I always thought maybe I could come back or, or get my degree and still be a teacher. And that's how then I started coaching little league football. Mm-hmm. And then I saw it kind of tuck up for me leaving college football and took it and I could, I could still coach. And then um, you're not going to believe this. Uh, I, I, I'll just jump ahead. But I coached at that little league park for 10 years and I kept praying to God, Lord, you know, give me a sign when you want me to leave here and go somewhere else. Because another local high school had called me and said, hey, we want you to be our coach. Uh, we want you to coach the JV. And so I'm praying and I'm praying nothing. So I kept coaching, and you're not going to believe this. I get a phone call that last year at 2 o'clock in the morning, and one of my football players was at Scottish Rite Hospital with appendicitis. Tell me that's not in. Oh, my Lord. I couldn't believe it, so I got in my car. I drove down to Scottish Rite. I held the kid's hand. I told him I loved him when he went in. I was going to be here when he got out, and that was my sign that I I finished my commitment. And um, that's that's – that's tell me that's a, that's not I just, God. Got, I, I just got the chills. <laughs> and so, so when that happened, I went and coached two years at a school called Dunwoody high school. And then I, uh, I had a real bad experience there and I had to literally take two football players off a of coach. They were fighting and I had to testify against them. So I said, you know, this is not for me. I'm done. And, uh, I'll just go back to coaching little league or, or just, you know, at this time I'm policing. And then God stepped in. The phone rang, and I picked up the phone. And the man that held my hand and told me he loved me was named Bill Schmitz. He was now a uh, football coach at Marist High School, at Marist School in Atlanta. And he goes, Cat, how you doing? I said, I'm doing good, coach. He says, uh, how'd you like coaching football this year? I said, 
I think I'm done. He goes, no, 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 no. He goes, you need to come up here at Marist. So I went to Marist and that was my first year at Marist. I coached ninth grade with him and coach Dan Perez. (laughs) And as fate would have it, that first year was the the ninth grade year was 2000. And we had a, a running back that was really good. And we had a quarterback and our quarterback got hurt and he blew his knee out against Westminster the first game. And me, Coach Schmitz, and uh, Coach Perez got together and said, who should we make the quarterback? And, and we're like, hey, this Sean McVay kid's pretty good, so let's, let's, let's put him at quarterback. <laughs> that was probably the best decision we've ever made in our lives. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's yeah. so cool. That's so and, cool. Uh, let me finish with this. That year at the banquet, we went 6-1. and one. The only game we lost was that Westminster game. And it was 20 years, I think right at 20 years, that I – held uh coach Mitz held my hand so when i spoke at the banquet i said um a football coach can change your life forever a football coach can come into your life as a young man and really help you and, and help you in those younger days and put you on the right path and i told him a story about this guy that held my hand and told me he loved me i said but the one thing i never did to that guy is i never told him i loved him back and so i told coach Mitz, coach stand up nobody knew who i was talking about i said i love you too coach and I appreciate everything you've done for me. And uh, he changed my life forever. And the day that he retired at Marist, he literally walked up to me and handed me his whistle. When I said, Coach, I got it from here. Wow. Jeez. So tell, tell me there ain't a God. That was. I mean, my whole life come full circle right there. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's so cool. Um, I don't even, like, know where to go from there. That was just, like, unreal. Um, so I, I, I'll go into this then because I think, a lot of kind of who you are and how you act and how you treat other people is from the like different role models, definitely like your coach, but I think your parents too um, was, were huge. You know, you talked about how they always treat or taught you that lat, like that your last name is more important, like fa- family is the most important thing. So outside of maybe those couple of things, what do you think is maybe one of the most important lessons that your parents have taught you? Uh, like my dad said, my dad always told me that my last name is more important than my first because that last name represents every single one of us. And my dad said, the only thing I'm going to give you in life that's going to be there forever is going to be my last name. And it's going to be, it's not going to have a single tarnish on it. And it's going to be up to you to keep our last name, you know, and, and to keep it, you know, be proud of it and, and don't, and don't um, you know, don't hurt it. And all my life, I never want to let my parents down. I mean, I was that kid that, started playing football and baseball at a young age. And, and even when, and so I, my, my parents were there for everything I did. I look in the crowd and there they were. I was very fortunate. I was truly blessed to be, to, to, to have two unbelievable parents and that believed in sports and sports kept, keeps you out of trouble. And I stayed out of trouble. I was a good kid. And so football was our life. And so was, you know, baseball as well. And they, uh, I watched my dad work, get up every day, go to work, never complain, never said anything went and did his nine hours, come home and just kept grinding, kept grinding. And, uh, I love it. I love it. Yeah. That instilled in me a work ethic. Yeah. I think, I think one of the big things too, that I've already like taken away and I kind of knew this about you, but your kind of your philosophy as a football coach is to like impact the lives of the people that you coach. Right. It's like, you love the game of football, but you really love, kind of like molding young men and like being an impact in their lives and and try to set them off and like on the right foot. Whereas I think a lot of people, when they like think of football, if they're not necessarily ever played, they just think of it as like the game itself and, and, 
and kind of look at it like that. But you have such a more of a grandiose perspective in terms of the importance of it. And like you already said, the importance of sports keeps you out of trouble um, and then all that other stuff. So I think that's really cool. Um, But I've always lived by the motto, a good coach can change a game. A great coach can change a life. Mm. And so when I get into that, I'm not into this – I'm not into the game, you know, wins and losses. And, and fortunately, I've been at an unbelievable, you know, high school where we, we've made the playoffs 37 straight years. And, and it's been a great, 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 you know, experience for me. But I didn't do it for that. Every single kid, including you, everybody that's ever went through the, the mayor's football team had my phone number. And that's, that's been over 20 years. And so, and I've always said, hey, I'm here. We're in this thing together, not just while you're on the football team but uh, for the rest of your life, because that's what I saw a coach do to me. And I've had a lot of phone calls over the years. I've had a coach, I'm in trouble. Coach, can you help me? And you got to be there for them because some kids, you don't know what's going on at their house or what's going on behind closed doors. And, you know, you see me do it to you. And I love on everybody. And I, it is, I'm, the, I'm the coach who's going to chew you out, get in your face, and 30 minutes later, I'm going to tell you I love you. And I do. I love every football player I've ever coached. And I mean that from my heart. That's just not a word I play with. And, and I want to be in their lives forever. And then what's kind of now, I'm, I'm growing older. I'm looking at what makes me proud. Is I'm looking at these young men who've grown up and now they're in their 30s. And, and now they're, you know, they're having their own kids and they're married. And, and I'm proud of them. And they're being good dads. And, you know, and I'm like, that's what it's all about. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, let's get into some of the the cop stuff. So you started back in, in 1988, I guess, November of 88, you said is uh, when you officially went on. So tell me a little about the early days and what your experience was like um, in terms of kind of what, what's your mindset towards it in terms of how you want your career to develop um, and, and just what it's, what it's like in your early days as a cop. Well, I, I, I literally became a patrolman in a place called Zone 3. It was known as the War Zone. That's where my grandmother lived. So when I got to the academy, you got to pick where you wanted to go if you were in the top 10%. And I've, everybody else chose to go to Buckhead and all the nice areas. I, I chose to go to, to uh, Zone 3, which is Southeast Atlanta. And everybody thought I was crazy, but that's why I got into it. Mm-hmm. And so I went down there the last eight years of my uh, grandmother's life. She, uh, nothing happened to her. I worked the night shift and all, all my buddies, it, uh, police, being a police officer is kind of like, um, it's a family within itself. It's a, it's a thin blue line. It's you're there for everybody. So everybody knows where everybody's family members live. And my grandmother literally had a house that had a driveway that went behind her house. And so when the police officers had to write reports and stuff, they would literally at two o'clock in the morning, drive behind my grandmother's house and write reports in her backyard. And she could look out her window and see the cops sitting in the backyard. Wow. And, um, that's then, then my pride kicked in and I wanted to be a, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. So there's an opportunity for me to get on this elite unit it was called red dog back in the day. And, uh, cause I had, I had a friend at OD'd in high school on drugs at a later time. And, uh, that affected me. So I literally said, I'm going to stop drugs in Atlanta, Georgia. And I really was naive enough to think I could do it. And so I, I joined the red dog unit and, uh, all we did was all Red Dog was was a tactical narcotics team that stood for an acronym stood for run every drug dealer out of Georgia, and we wore black uniforms. We just hunted drug dealers and gang members, and I did that for almost eight years. And then uh, once I realized I couldn't, I couldn't change it. You're just you're just barely putting a dent in it. Yeah. And then uh, I uh, became an undercover narcotics detective for a little bit, 
and that was okay. And then, uh, and then I became a homicide detective and that changed my life forever. I was a homicide detective for, uh, for 13 years. Hmm. And, um, the hardest part of being a homicide detective is, is, um, when you have that death, let's say it's a, a young lady, this is an actual case. I mean, we wore black, um, trench coach. We get called out in the morning. I worked the night shift. So I'm sitting there and we get caught. I have a young lady that was murdered. Now I have to go tell the family. So I can remember, I've done a new, numerous of these things, but this is one that really stuck with me. I knocked on the door and I'm, they look out. I have my badge pinned up here on my collar and I got my hat on. She looks outside and I can see her turn the light on and look out. And she goes, I think it's the police. She comes downstairs and I walk in. I said, ma'am, are you alone? Is your husband here? And he's coming down. And, and then I deliver the worst news they're ever going to get in their lives. And I tell them, you can't tell them it's an accident. You have to tell them your daughter's been murdered. And so she jumps up, runs over, calls the phone because the daughter was supposed to be spending the night with somebody else. She calls that person. And that person goes, no, she said they were spending the night with you and all that. And then all of a sudden she collapsed on the floor. And I picked her up, put her on the sofa. The dad, he just can't, he's in shock. He can't believe it. And um, so, and that's the start of a case. And then now you got to bring closure to that family. And then you got to, so when I, I got really good at it because I never want to get beaten. I want to bring those people closure. And again, I, with my, with my walk with Christ, I felt, okay, this is my calling. And so I would literally become closer to that family than I should. And, um, and then I would go in and I would solve it, come in. But you never are the bearer of good news. Even when you solve it, you can't bring the kid back. And uh, But you, you stay in those, those families' lives forever. And it's, it's in your heart and it's in your mind. And you'll never forget them yeah. because you're the one that gave them that news. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah, I mean, that sounds – I can't even fathom what that experience is like. What did you maybe like learn, either learn about yourself or what maybe like quality did you develop – since you had to do that tough of a thing that's just like nobody has to do unless they're in that, unless they're in your shoes. Um, I, I seen other cops, other detectives to them. It was, you know, eh, you know, it's just another dead guy or whatever. And the kid might've been a drug dealer or something like that. And then, you know, then you, you, you kind of get desensitized. I never did that because I know what a, a a mom and a dad's love for a child is. And when I testified in court, I always, they always asked me, Detective Stevens, do you work for the Atlanta Police Department? And I always tell them no. I work for that family sitting in the back of that courtroom right there. That's who I work for. And I don't work for the mayor. I don't work for the city of Atlanta. I work for them. I'm going to bring them closure. And I'm here today to, to talk about the death of their child. And if you take it personal, and if you take it within your heart to bring closure, and you try to get a bad guy off the street, I don't care who he killed or what he killed. Somebody loves that kid and uh, that, that victim. And that's how you have to look at it. And I've seen other people who would be like, ah, he's just, you know, he's been a drug dealer for years. But what I always did to help motivate me was I'd go get a, uh, I've had plenty of pictures of the guy dead or the girl or whoever. I got plenty of pictures, video. I went and found a picture. I went and talked to the mom and I would say, hey, can you give me a picture of uh, your daughter or your son playing football or cheerleading or something? Because I want to see them alive. So that day when I'm not having a good day and I'm tired and I flip open that file and I see that picture, that's who you're working for. And then that motivates you. And that's how I trained everybody. And uh, most people in Atlanta, homicide unit that way. And, um, and my, uh, almost 13 years, I had a, I had 122 homicides and I solved 117 of them. And I was very proud of that. And there was five I didn't solve. And I know people are going to say, well, does that still drive you crazy? Yeah. 
I know three of them who did it and I, I can't prove it. And the other two, I don't, I don't have any clue on whatsoever, but it, 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 it affected me so much. I got so involved in it that I was so wanting to, to bring closure and help people that sometimes you forget about things at home. And then, I, I uh, had a little awakening and then my daughter almost died. And I said, that's it. I need to, I need to stop doing this because it's, Homicide is not an eight-hour-a-day job. It's a 24-hour-a-day job. You're constantly thinking about what you can do, what you didn't do, and, and what else you got to do and what you forgot to add, and, and you're thinking of different ways to, to solve a puzzle. Mm-hmm. So I think that you being so kind of like emotionally invested and like acting like you're working for the family was probably one of the reasons that you always stay, stayed so motivated and you were so successful getting one, 117 of the 122. But maybe like outside of that, more like specifically like why – what allowed you to be so good? Like what were maybe some other things that you were just really good at in terms of like your strategies um, that made you so successful at it? I was a very good interviewer. I, uh, I went to all these schools, these interview schools. Uh, I was a neurolinguistics expert. In other words, I can talk to you and I know when you're lying to me by certain ways you look at, you look at, look, you know, in direction, you know, your muscle memory recall and, and you, you know, what brain dominant you are and all that. So I went to several schools on that. Some people call it a read method. I did the read method later, but I, I went to an advanced school in the beginning when it first came out. And so I was really good at interviews and I was really good at talking to people. And you got to remember harder the shell when somebody gets in there and they, they look hard, softer the heart. Um, the people who are the hardest to break in an interview are the kids on the streets. You get a doctor in there, he thinks he's smarter than you. It's all about trying to figure this out and trying to break them and get them to confess to what they did. And I was very good at that to the point where other people would call me in to interview their suspects. And uh, I did that for a long time. And that was something that I brought. And plus my desire to, from sports, to not be beaten. I didn't like to be beaten in anything. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I want to bring up one thing that you said. You said your, your daughter almost died? Yeah, it was a, uh, it was, as my wife would tell you, it was a summer from hell. Um, my daughter, we were, it was June, 8, June 18th. Um, we're down in Florida and I'm the most protective father you've ever seen in your life. I have two, I have three children, two boys and a girl. And my daughter is just, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a father's love for his daughter. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And, uh, we're there and I'm cooking the next day's father's day. So we're all down there cooking in a, in a, at a condo in Florida. And uh, my mother-in-law takes my daughter. We've been trying to teach her to swim all week. And she gets there and um, my mother-in-law takes her to the pool along with two other older women. And then my mother-in-law decides she's going to go and ask other people if they want to come to this cookout. I'm back at the condo cooking. And the two women that were my daughter looked at my daughter and says, can you swim? And my daughter's been trying to learn to swim all week. And she's like, four and she goes and they go she goes yeah i can swim so my daughter jumps in the pool and she goes to the bottom of the pool and she and she is at the bottom of the pool so all of a sudden this guy comes running up to me goes danny he goes sydney's in trouble i said why he goes sydney's drowning sydney he says sydney has drowned and the first thing i did is i prayed and my worst fear my worst nightmare had just hit me and i took off running and and then I could see her, them getting her out of the pool. She was bloated and she had started to turn color. And my wife's uncle started CPR on her. So I jumped the fence 
Uh, then uh, he had started it, and I started finishing it. And then I picked her up, put her on my shoulder, started jumping up and down to get her to, to, to start puking the water. And I'm, I'm sitting here, and I'm praying the entire time. I went, oh, God, please, no. Oh, God, no. And it was one of those hot, hot, hot Junes. So uh, I didn't want to lay her on, on, the, on the concrete because it was hot. So I ran into the, uh, to my condo, threw her on the floor, and I started CPR on her. And then I looked at my wife. They already, people already dialed 911. I looked at my wife and my son, my old son. I said, go find the ambulance. They're not going to know where we're at. Get them here because she, you know, she, she wasn't breathing. She was dead. And I'm praying and I'm, and I'm doing CPR. And then all of a sudden she throws up the water. I turn her to her side and she keeps throwing up. And then she looks at me and she's crying. When you're crying, that means you're breathing. And the greatest word I ever heard in my life came out of her mouth. She looked at me and she said, Dad. And I was like, oh, God, thank you, Jesus. And then uh, I jump up. We put her in the ambulance. And then we get to the hospital. And I always remember this. There's a thing called, um, I think it's called uh, dry drowning. But anyway, if you don't know about it, if your kid, you need, your kid still needs to go to the hospital. We go and she gets a, a CAT scan and she still had fluids in her lungs. And then uh, what they did was is they kept her overnight. Because a lot of times people almost drown. They don't know there's fluids on their lungs. And then at night when they go to bed, they die. And uh, so if anybody out there listening, if your child almost drowns, take them to the hospital and, and let them do a, an MRI on her. I mean, a CAT scan on her. So the next day was the greatest father's day of my life. It's the greatest gift I ever had. And then you know, all of a sudden you think it can't get no worse. I'm, I right then and there it changed my life forever. I, my family became first, which my family was always first, but I thought, how hard I worked and I needed to make everybody proud of me and all that. So I then left the homicide unit right after that. Cause I'm like, I got to focus just on my family. So you think all of a sudden things can't get worse. I get home. I'm thankful and praying and everything is great. And then uh, my neighbor who lived two houses over from me steps outside with a gun and starts shooting at people. Just started shooting at everybody. My, and I lived in a cul-de-sac and I known this neighbor for a couple of years and a uh, nice guy. And he had fallen off the wagon. He's an alcoholic and a drug user. He's 59 years old. His name was Greg. I love the guy. He steps outside and he starts shooting at everybody. Everybody starts running in my house because everybody knows I'm a, I'm the cop. And uh, so I'll dial 911. And uh, to make a long story short, uh, I have to go outside and, and confront him. And he shoots at me and I end up shooting him. And then he uh, goes back into his garage with a gun. And then uh, the, another police department finally shows up to help me out. And then he comes out with a bottle of Jack Daniels in his hand. He drinks it and puts it behind his back. And I know what he's doing. And I'm telling him, don't do it. They're going to kill you. I had shot him in the groin area. I didn't want to kill him. But anyway, so they, uh, he comes out and takes that bottle and points it at me real fast. And the guy with the sniper rifle shoots and kills him. So, uh, that was a uh, that was the worst summer of my life. So right then and there, I uh, I said, okay, I'm no longer going to be in homicide, and I need to move. So we moved to uh, to Cumming, Georgia, and uh, I left the uh, the FBI has this unit that's called the uh, the Violent Crimes Unit. It's a task force where they hunt where you hunt murderers, rapists, child molesters, and bank robbers. And they came to me, and uh, I said, you know what? I'm your guy. So, and that's how the, my last 11 years finished there. I was on the violent crimes unit with the FBI. 
So that so it's kind of weird how God refocuses everything and what you think is important all of a sudden is not as important. And for gosh, for the last my daughter's sixteen years, uh, thirteen years old. So that's all my life's been about is my family. Yeah. So it kind of refocuses everything. Yeah, it's it's really cool and kind of crazy at the same time to me how you've kind of just like let the experiences that you've had in your life kind of like take you to where you are. Like in the sense of like you're, when, you're, um, when your grandmother got um, assaulted or whatever, you decided that you were going to be a cop be, and you were going to like go down into that area. And then like this, this circumstance switched you into uh, – or like your, your uh, friend who got into drugs, you're like, okay, I'm going to – do like fight those kinds of or like try to eliminate the drugs and, and being red dog and then this thing you're like okay now i'm gonna go to the violent crimes thing so you just kind of like very much listened to like god if you will calling you to these different areas so i think that's just like super cool and really unique um but you know you've you did a lot you've done a lot of drug raids you've gone into higher high stress pressure situations when you're in the fbi i'm sure all the time what do you think is one of the keys for you or had been one of the keys for you going into like a high pressure, high stress situation to kind of go in with the right mindset and like stay relatively calm or just like maybe focused is better is the better word to describe it. I've, uh, when you do an entry, uh, you go in, you either blow the door, you hit it with a hammer, you, you go on the shield. I've probably done over 10,000 entries in my career. Uh, with the, my almost eight years in Red Dog and these the last 11 with the FBI, which was also the fugitive unit with Atlanta. You're going to laugh. One of the football players asked me the other day, Coach, you ever get scared? Uh, after 10,000 raids, I said, yeah. And you're always scared. And you're always a little bit worried because you don't know what's on the other side of that room, on the other side of that door, and you're going after some of the baddest of the bad. And the thing that I've always fell back on or are two things, my faith and my training. And uh, first of all, if you're right with God and something goes wrong, I'll see you on the other side. We'll be, I'll be waiting on you. And you have to make sure your faith is right. And I've, I've always put a lot of uh, emphasis on, on my walk with Christ. And it's always made me at ease. And uh, that's what I tell my kids. And uh, I'll tell you a story about that in a minute. But then you got to train. you got to sweat now so you don't bleed later. And, and I'm really big on training. And uh, when we go in, I want to make sure everybody knows what they're doing. And I've always uh, – you, you've heard my pregame speeches. I'm pretty much – I'm fired up, and I do that with my team. Hey, we're going to do this. We're going to – because I can see them when we're sitting down talking and, and we're getting um, briefed, and they go, hey, this guy's going to put on Facebook. He's put on social media. He's not going to be taken alive and, and blah, 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 and he's going to do this, and he, you know, he's going to kill all the cops he can. I can see the fear hit him. And so as uh, – as somebody who's been around longer, then I I look at them and I say, hey, let me tell you right now. I said, we'll do what we have to do. I promise you everybody's going home. By God, just follow me. We'll get this done. I promise there ain't nothing going to happen to you. And then that's why I've always was one of the first two guys through the door because I've done so many of them and I know what I'm looking for. And that way nobody behind me gets hurt, hopefully. And knock on wood, uh, the only person who's ever been hurt was me. And, uh, and then we, uh, we've had some incidents. I've been in, in my 31 years, I've been, I think it's been 17 shootouts. And uh, the hardest thing to ever do is to take a life. And uh, everybody talks about, oh, you know, the war movies and all that stuff. You have to remember, 
when you take a life, somebody loved that individual and you gotta, you have to live with that. And you justify in your head, what if you let him do this? Or maybe he would have dropped that gun he's pointing at you. Or well, what if he'd have pulled the trigger? So, and that's where I, I always try to be there for other officers when they shoot somebody because I know what you're going through. See, that's where officers have a hard time because a lot of times they turn to, to drinking and alcohol and hanging around buddies and all that stuff because that's how they, you know, they face reality. That's how they, they you know, they want to go through it and, and, and stop the pain. And that's not the way to do it. You just really need to reach out to other people and, and other veterans. And if you're a real veteran, you'll reach out to them and say, hey, I'm here for you. Let's talk about it. I've been there. I know what you're going through. I know what you're thinking. And then, because uh, that's the hardest thing to do is shoot somebody. And especially if you take a life and you're like, oh, you know, then you start, it's just, it's just really hard on you. Yeah. Is there any, um, the, you said you had, you had a, a story. Is there any like particular story or any like highest, what, what, how do I phrase this? Is there any been like a craziest experience or scariest experience that comes to the top of your head? Like I know, like you said, you had like 17 shootouts and you've had some probably crazy kind of experiences. Is there anything that jumps out to your mind that maybe affected you the most moving forward? Yeah, I was in a, a really, I was in one of the biggest shootouts in Atlanta police history. It's called the Hollywood shootout. It was up on Holly Ridge. It was a housing project up there. I was in Red Dog at the time. And um, this big drug dealer, they call him the mule. He's bringing all these drugs in. And uh, I had received information that this was happening. And uh, so me and my team, we went up there. It's called creeping. We snuck through the woods and we're sitting there waiting on him. So when he comes up, he pulls up. Everything is going perfect. And he gets out of the car. He's got the drugs on him. Well, lo and behold, uh, a local gang, um, also knew that he was delivering the drugs. So when we come to take him down, this gang is running out there. This, uh, I think they were called the I Refuse Posse. They come running out. They're going to rob him and kill him and take his drugs. So all three of us converge on each other into an unbelievable shootout. Um, I end up shooting two people in that, in that situation. There was um, a moment where we're all shooting at each other. Uh, they take off running to a car and there's, there's four of them shooting at us, and uh, there's only three, three, I have three guys on my team with me, and then we have some more down the street that we're going to call in to help in case he gets in a car. So they couldn't – by the time they got there, it's already over with. So they get in this car, and this guy, he's got a fully automatic AK-47, and he is lighting me up. And I'm behind a 1967 Chevrolet Impala, and all of a sudden I'm hiding. I'm, he is – the bullets that he is shooting is going all the way through the car. So I'm behind the car and I look and I can see the metal coming, going out. And I went, oh God, these bullets are going through the car. So now I got to get underneath the car near the axle. And all I had was a shotgun. So he is shooting, he is shooting, he is shooting at me. And then uh, all of a sudden I smell gas. And then I was like, if I'm going to die, I'm dying fighting. So at that time, I then came up. As I came up, I ended up shooting him. I shot him and took uh, most of his hand off. So he drops the gun, and but this is how much of a a bad person this guy was. He reached <laughs> down with his other hand, picked that gun up, holds his hand like this, and is continued to shoot at me. But the only thing that saved me was the gun was fully automatic. He didn't know how to shoot, and it kept raising. And then as he's shooting, he hit the ground, caught the car on fire, and the car caught on fire beside me, and, and it just went up in flames. And so I started burning me. So I went and dove behind another car. And um, trying to put everything out, and I'm reloading my gun. Now, now they get in this car, 
And as they're coming in the car, I'm behind. I don't know if you remember this car is called a Yugo. And I think I was probably safer behind a cardboard box in this car. <laughs> so here they come. They're about to drive by me. And as they're driving by me now, as they get beside me, this guy's shooting out the window. There's three of them shooting out the window. And but as soon as they get beside me, I won't have any cover. So I, I then shot into the car and I hit the driver, took his lips off and they, they were, well, shot him in the face. And then he drove, went down the street, wrecked the car. They got into another car and they got away. But we ended up catching a couple of them. And the driver, it was kind of weird. His, uh, when we get to the car, I knew he was hit because his lips, when I hit him in the face, his lips were laying, laying on the uh, on the steering wheel. And to this day, we've never found him. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, if you ever see a guy somewhere, I'm looking for him. <laughs> uh, that was one of those situations that when they when they took the car, that, I was, that first car that was on fire, when everybody gets there, there were so many rounds shot. And I'll tell you what's kind of – Ironic, at the same time that shootout was going on, there was a guy named Eric Rudolph that had just taken a bomb and put it at a bar called the Other Side Bar, and it went off at the same time my shootout happened. So half the city got divided. So Eric Rudolph had just bombed a, 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 a one of our bars called the Other Side, and then so half the city's going there and half the city's coming to me. And uh, that's how I can always remember the date of that because it's the same time he started doing his bombing. And uh, But the thing it was kind of, you said it kind of changed my life was is is when they took the car that I, the first car I was behind, you could see all the bullet rounds that were literally going around my body. My body was right here by the tire and there was rounds that went here, rounds that went there. And it's just kind of like a silhouette around me. And then of course, and then I get underneath the car and uh, it's like, if it's your time, it's your time. If it ain't, it ain't. And uh, oh, so, and of course, like I said, if you, I don't want to keep harping about my, my walk with Christ, but it's just, it, it, it sues you. And that's how, that's what keeps like police officers, families. Okay. Because we're like, Hey, we have to, we have to believe in something. And then it makes my wife sleep at night. She says, Hey, if it's your time to go, it's your time to go. And that was proof to her that somebody is, somebody's looking after you, you know? Oh my Lord. I could hear these stories all day long. That's just crazy. Everybody says I need to write a book, but I just, just I mean, you're, you're so good at doing the storytelling part of it too. Like I feel, I've, I feel like I could be there and like picture it myself. Um, you definitely have to find a find a way to like put the story somewhere, whether like you just record yourself saying them or write them down. I don't know, um, but it's just awesome stuff. Um, God, I, I, I like honestly just want to stay <laughs> stay on the stories all day long. But uh, I want to get a little bit into uh, you know you mentioned Sean McVeigh how you coach him in ninth grade, and then they won the Maris from the state championship with him back in two thousand three. And now everybody knows who he is, obviously the coach of the Los Angeles Rams. But this year, this past year, this past February, they went to the Super Bowl. So I'm going to actually just let you take it from there and tell your experience with the Super Bowl. Oh, it was um, one of the greatest experiences of my life. I mean, I got to work the Olympics in 96 and, and all that stuff. I'm sitting there and uh, uh, the Rams had reached out to my chief. And I knew Sean was coming to Atlanta. And uh, they asked for me to personally be assigned to guard to, sh- to, to guard the team in Sean McVay, Los Angeles Rams. So um, it was kind of cool. It was um, – so the letter came in. My chief says, hey, you're going to – the Rams come in on uh, this Sunday. You're going to be assigned to them. You're at the hotel. 
uh, when they come in, introduce yourself to them. I'm like, yeah, I, I know the coach, you know. And, uh, <laughs> so uh, the, the Rams come in and they get off the bus, and then uh, here comes uh, uh, Wade Phillips, Coach Phillips, and the rest of the staff, and Sean. And Sean looks right at me, comes up, and calls me Coach Cop. Hey, Coach, love you. And that's the thing that we have. You know me; I tell everybody I love. You. And uh, so he goes, "Love you, Coach." He goes, "I love you." And he goes, um, "I need a favor from you." And I said, "Sure." He goes, I want you to dress my team. And I said, you want me to talk to the team? And he goes, yeah. He goes, pretty much tell them what they can and can't do, where they can and can't go, and blah, 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 and where they need to stay away from and all this and that. And so <laughs> 40 minutes into them getting to the hotel, I'm standing in front of Los Angeles Rams like I used to stand in front of you and all the guys, all the kids at Marist and go, hey, don't do this. Don't go here. Stay away from this place. If you need this, you need this you know, reach out to this number or whatever. And then next thing I know, Coach uh, McVeigh comes up to me and says, hey, you don't mind if I, if I give him your cell phone number? Like I've given my cell phone number over 20 years out to everybody. And I said, yeah, why not? Give my cell phone number. So he, his assistant's name is Billy. And Billy puts my cell phone number and sends it to every single person on the Rams team. And all of a sudden, everybody now has my cell phone number. And – um so for the next eight days, uh, I literally went to breakfast, lunch, and dinner with them. I was going to commute back and forth from my house, and then uh, the Rams came up to me and says, nope, you got a room here with us, and you're going to stay in a hotel with us, and you're with us 24-7. So I got to go to their practices, and, and I would probably say I was able to see things that nobody else was able – I was able to walk into the – to the defensive office, and I'm I'm watching uh, Coach Phillips uh, prepare for the uh, the uh, you know the New England Patriots. I'm watching their game plan, and and I'm watching them. You know, I mean, I'm I'm privy to a lot of information that's going on, and they trusted me wholeheartedly. Of course, they come up to me, hey, tell me stories about you know Coach McVeigh and all that stuff, and there's really no stories to tell. He was the the perfect kid. He didn't uh, you know never done anything wrong. Was was always on time. Was a great leader. One of the greatest leaders we ever had at Maris. And, there was nothing I could really say. I couldn't tell him anything, you know, any gossip or anything. It was kind of funny. And I said, y'all got the greatest guy. I mean, everybody's looking for the next Sean McVay, and you ain't going to find him because there ain't but one of him. But a, a thing that I try to do every morning was uh, I try to get up early and beat him, beat him in the office. One day I got up at five, he was already there. One day I got up at four, and he was already there. And then one night at, uh, at 2.30 in the morning, I couldn't sleep. So I got up and came down. I was like, I'm going to beat him today. And he was already in his office. And um, so he came out. I tried to keep my distance from him. I didn't want to be a distraction to him. So it ain't like me and him sit there and talk 24-7. Right, he, right. He's preparing for the Super Bowl. And so he, he walks out and he looks at me and he says, well, coach, you've been here four or five days. What do you think? And I said, son, you have surrounded yourself with some great people. Your coaches are phenomenal. The administrative staff that you have here and your players are phenomenal. I said, you have really surrounded yourself with some great people. He goes, I know, Coach. He goes, and that's why you're here. Now, I mean, I almost broke down. I'm I was fighting back tears. I mean, that's yeah. how he is. You know, I'm like, well, man, I appreciate that. Oh. And then, so when the game started, um, I was on the sidelines, and uh, that's just how many people can say they're on the sidelines of a Super Bowl, you know? Yeah. And then uh, he, um, before the game started, the team was getting ready to go down, and he came to me and asked me a a personal favor and I said well hey whatever you need he goes can you uh make sure that my family 
and my girlfriend, and, and, and I remember his grandfather was a general manager for the San Francisco 49ers and was a coach of the New York Giants and all that. John McVay. So he goes, please just get on the bus with him and make sure they make it to the stadium and that they get in. I said, I got your family. Don't you worry. I know what family, because family means everything to me. So I get them in there. We get them on the sidelines before the game. Then I take them up and put them in the, in the, in the suites. And then I'll come down. And then during the halftime, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to be down there with all that. And then, so I went back upstairs and, and sat up there with them, with the family and, and got to listen to stories from them. Uh, Sean's grandfather, John McVay, and all that stuff. It was just – it was an unbelievable um, – of course, it didn't turn out the way we wanted it to turn out. I mean, I was really rooting for him to win. But, you know, it's also been an honor just to be associated with him and Maris and all that. And uh, it was a great experience. And uh, so now they're, the Rams will be back in town on the 20th. And so they just reached out to me yesterday. And I don't – so we're now going back and forth because they play the Falcons in town. So I don't – I ain't quite sure what I'm doing with them then. So we'll see. Yeah. That's, That's awesome. awesome. That's so cool. But it was unbelievable. I mean, I'm sitting here going, oh, my God, wait a way to finish my career. I'm sitting right here with a kid that I've coached since he was 13 years old. And here he is, 32, 33, coaching a Super Bowl. And I'm looking right at Well, a lot of people – let's see, a lot of people didn't know who I was. Now, the players did. And the players called me Coach Cobb. And so during all his interviews, we'd have to go all these interviews everywhere. And then one day we're at the uh, – uh, one of those arenas downtown, the new uh, the new State Farm Arena, and they're doing the interviews in there. And all of a sudden, man, so I'm standing right beside Sean. He's all right. He's, they're asking him about his photographic memory, about a play from Marist, you know, and all that. So I look, of course, I'm not going to let him play. I'll look down and see the play, and I'm going, yeah, he'll remember that one, you know, Cause, because, I mean, I was there as well. And then all of a sudden, nobody knows who I am. And then this guy walks, this reporter walks up to me, and he says, I know who you are, Coach Cop. It was Fred Khalil. Oh, remember, my God. You know Fred. Fred's yeah. son went to Maris. I coached his son at Maris. He, so, he's in my grade. He was in my grade. That's right. So I looked at him and I said, all right, Fred. I said, this ain't about me, buddy. This is about – I said, I don't want anybody to know who I am. He goes, all right, your secret's good with me. And I was like – so I kind of stayed behind the scenes and everything, which I thought it was great. And I got to watch the whole interviews and all the all the big – media bliss and everybody coming in, everybody's wanting to, you know, this and that. And I'm like, man, it's really just a distraction. You really, you better have your football already down pat because you're not really going to, you're not going to really get a lot accomplished that week because you're being pulled in several different directions. And I'm thinking, wow, man, it's, it's now it's just, it's, it's more of a Hollywood production than a football game because of what they, um, how much time they want you. And of course they still got to have time. That's why he's got to show up there at two thirty, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. So we uh, we got up there and uh, they practiced in, in in Flowery Branch. So I, we got to take a bus ride up there with them every day. And that was pretty cool. I got pretty tight to a lot of the players. They were really, really good. And I'm still friends with some of them today. I mean, they still text me back and forth and stuff like that. And uh, they're good guys, man. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I want to ask a few more questions. Uh, one I want to get into, you know, you've been a football coach now at Mar- or You've been a football coach for longer, but at Mayor's for – a little bit, 20 years or so, yeah, a little yeah. over 20 years. Um, what do you think, like, what does it take to rally a group of young people like that and, like, make them – like, you're so good at being a leader and getting everybody fired up and getting them motivated and just kind of, like, getting them inspired to play football, but then just, like, being better people too. Like, what – what is the thing, one of the things that maybe you have, like a skill that allows you to rally young people so well? 
Uh, I don't know if it's a, a gift or a curse because you really have to reach inside to a young man. And I, this is what I tell him. Every inside of every individual is a, is a beast or a demon. And you got to let them out. You got to feed them every now and then. And this is like a pregame speech. I said, hey, football is a violent sport. It is. If you walk out there and you ain't, you ain't ready to, to hit somebody, you're going to get hit. So you better have your mind right. You better have your heart in the right place. If you're going to come out here and you're going to be passive, you're going to get hurt. And so you know how my pregame speeches are. I get out there and I tell you, hey, right now when that whistle blows, you release hell. You get out there, you bring something that's never been brought before this game, and you've got to become violent. you got to be violent really fast. And I said, and you have to be able to have the right mindset to do that. And I said, hey, you know what? And when it's all said and done on Sunday, go get your rosary beads and we'll pray for, we'll pray for forgiveness. But right now you're in a violent sport. And but what football brings to everybody is it's I relate it to life. There's times in life you're gonna hey, you're gonna get knocked down. And and I tell the kids, the best friends you're ever gonna have in your entire life is in this room right now in high school. Because when you get to college and play college football, the guy behind you wants you to get hurt because that way he gets playing time. It's not like a brotherhood as it as it is here. And I told him, I said, these are your best friends you're ever gonna have in your entire life. When you get married, these are gonna be the guys in your wedding. When you have your first child, these are going to be the guys coming to the hospital. And unfortunately, when you have a tragedy in your family and your mom and pop die, these are going to be the guys that's going to carry the casket. I said, these are guys that are going to be in your life for the rest of your lives. So quit worrying about moving on and going somewhere else and live in the now and enjoy this because these are guys that will be by beside you for the rest of your lives. They'll have you back until the day you die. Because when you come back and you have these reunions, that's all you're going to talk about. I said, so let's go ahead and go out there and let's play this football game. And let's make sure when we have that reunion, we talked about how we beat the hell out of St. Pius and how we've done this and we've done it, which is our, our tribal. And, and, and that way it's going to be a good reunion. Yeah. And you just got to, you just got to motivate men. I mean, and the thing is, is they want to be motivated. They want to get fired up because if you, if you walk out there and you're even killed another team comes, anybody can beat you on any given day, period. And if you're not, you're not, you know, if you're not ready to start in a hurry and start and bring that violence quick and you're going to be in trouble. Gotcha. Do you have your pregame speech for tonight prepared? Or I, I do not. I do not. I was sitting here thinking, I got something I got to work on. I, I, I usually what I do is I'll try to find something, and then um, when I'm out there, we're, we're warming up, and then I'll come up with something. Or sometimes somebody will say something or trigger something, and I'll jump on that. Or I, I don't. I usually, I last minute. I never even think yeah. about it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So cool. um, I like it. I've had some pretty good ones and. Uh, I'm surprised I haven't gotten a lot of trouble in them yet. But, you know, again, that's why there is no priest or anybody in there when I give pregame speeches. So, yeah, uh, it's, uh, uh, the kids like it. And uh, yeah, no doubt. That's like I, th- I feel like I mean, I have like so many different memories and everything like that. But that's probably the one thing that I feel like I talk about the most and that like a lot of people talk about the most is, is Coach Cop's pregame speeches. <laughs> um, well, I want to get, get down to the last couple questions. So the, these last two, I always ask every, everybody, and we've gotten to a lot of like awesome stories, but so this is going to be a little bit, I guess, different tone to the interview. Um, but this one is, I always start off with the age question. Um, so how, how old are you currently? You said 53? I'm 53, yep. Okay, cool. I'm 53 so, this June. Yeah, so in 10 years down the road, you're going to be 63. Um, what does 63-year-old Danny Stevens or Coach Cop look like? What have you done up to that point, and what are you currently doing? Uh, right now, uh, I think 63 is going to be great because in 63, I'll probably have grandkids by then, uh, and then I'll be able to pour all my love and, and everything that I have into them. Uh, 
I'm hoping I'm still in shape. If I can keep in touch with you, I will be. Um, <laughs> at 63, I'll be fully retired. I retired from the Atlanta Police Department last year, and I'm back under a contract right now with them. And I'm currently about to be the number two in command of another police department here. They're fixing to bring me in at the end of the month. And uh, so I'm, I'll do that for five years, and then I'll probably I'll call it quits after that. Um, I know I'll be happy. I don't know where I'm going to be. I mean, like I told you earlier, my son plays football in South Dakota. Man, I love it up there, but it does get cold. Yeah. And uh, especially in the spearfish area. So uh, I don't know. I might still be here. I hope not. I want to be traveling. I want to to, um, uh, see the world and uh, and broaden my horizon and uh, go fit. All I really, truly, what I want to do the rest of my life is hunt, fish, be with my kids, and drink coffee. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's awesome. Sounds like a pretty good, uh, pretty good rest of your life plan. Uh, well, before I ask the last question, Coach, I want to acknowledge you for, um, gosh, so many things. First, for being that mentor for everyone, for every every single person has ever played for you, for you to reach your hand out to them, for you to reach your put your number out to every single person, um, because you always made it known to us as players that if anything ever went wrong. Let me know. I'll help you out however I can. Um, and for just being so much more than a football coach, um, being that mentor, uh, I mean, like I could have done this podcast with anybody, but I, I did it with you. And, you know, you're not the head coach. You're not weren't my position coach or anything like that. Um, but that shows the, the impact that you've had on me. And I know my brother as well. And I know all the other teammates that I had and everything like that. So I just want to start off. Um, by, I guess, you know, thanking and acknowledging you for all you've done in, in my life and I know all the other people's people's lives that you've been in. Well, I appreciate that. I'm the one that's truly blessed because I got to coach people like you and your brother. And uh, I was the one that, I mean, it was kind of like, if you remember what we were talking about, I was a cop and I'm doing these red dog and, you know, homicide and all that. So to counterbalance that, I got to be with fine young men such as yourself and and the Marist football players, and it kind of evened everything out in my life. It was the yin to my yang, you know. And and so when you see a lot of death and destruction of the world and people, bad people, and, and then I get to come over here and be with you kids and then hopefully try to make be a small influence in your life and let you, you know, learn, teach you what I know and what I've learned over the years and pass a little bit on to you guys and help you in your ways and your journey in life. And uh, I'm the one that's truly blessed, man. I mean, my whole journey from – 13 years old to coach Schmitz calling me and I'm still at Marist to this day. And it's uh God, what a ride it's been. It's been unbelievable. And everybody always asks me, Hey, you know, how would you describe your life? And I'm blessed. I'm just lucky to be sitting right here in front of you talking to one of my former football players. And, uh, and I'm proud of what you've done and where you going. And, and I hope everything works out for you in Nashville. It's a great area. And I, I, I keep up with you. I follow you on Instagram and all that stuff, which I do everybody. And all these guys forget about it. You know, <laughs> I kind of like, I kind of like keeping a secret eye on everybody because yeah. they forget they friend requested me or, or they accepted mine. And uh, so, uh, but the thing about it is, is here we are all these years later and we're still in everybody's life. I'm still in your life. You're still in mine. I mean, you know, a year or two ago, you was over here helping us coach a little bit. And, um, and that's what it's about. It's yeah, about it's relationships and it's about being there for one another and helping each other when they need need each other and they need help because life's rough yeah. and it takes a village, man. So. Yeah. 
Well, the last question that I always ask everybody, um, I believe that becoming the best version of yourself is always a constant journey. I think that we're always chasing down um, that best version. And I also think it's a unique journey. I think the way that I'm going to become the best version of myself is going to be different from the way that you become the best version of yourself. So the way I I like to end things out is uh, for you personally is if there are three things that you could currently do or currently work on to get closer to the best version of yourself. What are those three things that you could currently do or currently work on? Um, I, I, like I told you, when, when my life changed with my daughter, I, those are the things I had to work on was, was my family. And so I'm trying to be a better father, a better husband, and a better friend. If I could be those three things in my life, I've, when I die, if they look at me and they said he was a good father, a good husband, a good friend, man, I accomplished everything. And so I'm working on those three things right there. And, and, and don't ever always never think that you're the best at anything because you always got ways to improve. And that's including my, my family life. But there's nothing more important to my wife, my children, my faith and my friends. And I'm constantly always trying to be a better person and, and trying to be better for them and help others. I want to help others. And that's why I've got into policing. That's why I got into coaching is to be there for everybody and hopefully if people who are watching this will go out there and just help somebody be, be, be a role model in somebody's life or, or pick somebody up when they fall down. Cause life's hard, man. It's hard. It's not easy. And it's harder on some and other people than others and some people than others. And, and just be there for somebody. And, and everybody's always caught up in stupid stuff like politics or, you know, or this and that, Hey man, just get up. And as long as you got breath in your lungs, you can change. You know, there's every day is a new day. Every day is a new day to be better. And then every day is a new day, a new day to help somebody and, and just be out, be there for everybody and help people. And it'll, it'll come back tenfold to you. Uh, so I don't know if I'd answer your question or not. No, it does. It does. Definitely. Well, I appreciate it, coach. That's all. That's all I got. Well, brother, I appreciate you. I'm proud of you. And again, if you ever need me, you got my phone number. <laughs> I appreciate it. All right. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed this unbelievable episode with coach cop. The story about his daughter nearly had me in tears. The story of his survival at age 13 gave me the chills, and the story of one of his shootouts made me just want to run through a wall right then and there. Make sure you share this episode with a friend or family member who will most definitely get inspired by this episode. Make sure that you're the one who sends them the episode, the podcast episode, that is the best that they have ever heard in their entire life. If you've been with me for a while now, I really appreciate you tuning in. Each week, you're continuing to improve. Remember that. Maybe it's not as fast as you quite want, but I promise you you're improving. Slowly but steadily, you're getting closer and closer to your best self. So thanks for your dedication and your consistency. If you're new here, make sure that you join this team, that you join this movement of one of the fastest growing self-improvement podcasts that's out there right now. Click subscribe, download the past 10 episodes, and catch up with the rest of us. And remember, remember your last name. It's more important than your first. Represent the rest of your family with dignity because you represent all of them with your actions every single day. Make them proud with how you carry yourself day in and day out. But for now, it's time. Thanks so much for listening. I know you got a lot of value here today from Coach Cop, so take some of this inspiration and use it to get a little bit closer and closer to your best you. You.